Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Const. It is Friday, July 2nd, also known as Sun Friday. And this is our second, second two-hour broadcast for our new schedule, which is, of course, airing on Wednesdays and Fridays from 8 p.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Eastern. Barring any technical difficulties, we live in unstable times, partly because one of our topics that we're talking about today of the dysfunction around climate change. New Yorkers right now are being told, hey, hey, it might be a million degrees outside, but turn off your ACs. Meanwhile, as they look out their windows, they see Times Square lit up. uh, And of course, you know, uh, major stores blasting their ACs against the law with their windows open, H&M, all those other stores that, that are you know scattered throughout the city. But no, 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 it's up to the individuals. Ban those straws. And uh, you individual must turn off your air conditioning and suffer, but not the big companies. No, no, no. Which all, of course, ties to real estate, which we'll talk about with our first guest today, who is Lindsay Boylan. Uh, But I say this because we have been dealing with quite a bit of technical difficulties that I will say are probably based in some sort of systemic issues uh, that have to do with capitalism. On my end, it was when I was in Puerto Rico and the power kept going out because the power grid was privatized. That was a few weeks ago, as you guys know. And uh, the, the, the people who are in charge of that new power grid or the new company, uh, Luma, had no experience in Puerto Rico. So, oh, my God, they didn't know where the lights were. So they couldn't turn on the lights for the power company. And as a result, there were a lot of power outages. And now we're dealing with the same in New York. So we appreciate all of your patience uh, in dealing with all of this. We're transitioning to this two-day-a-week show. Uh, the two days a week, of course, you get two hours of content same amount of content that we had before, it's just all concentrated. So on Wednesdays, we're going to talk specifically about domestic politics and have you know authors on, et cetera. And on Fridays, it's Fem Friday. We'll still talk about politics, but we're going to have, you know, hopefully have more conversations around the gender inequities um, that happen in society. But today, uh, it is we're mainly talking about New York climate and a little bit, you know, a little bit of some other stuff too. Uh, Kirsten Cinema, you know, basically our biggest issues right now: democracy climate change, those are big issues. And in New York City, uh, we don't know who our mayor is. It was, uh, we had an election a week and a half ago on June 22nd, it is now July 2nd, as of this moment, we still don't know who is going to be the mayor of New York. Part of that is because the Board of Elections started counting, and I say counting, votes on June 28th. And then they were kind of caught in a situation in which the number of votes that they said they were counting did not match the number of votes that were released before to the press. It was a little confusing. So here's where we are right now. Okay, 135,000 votes included in Tuesday's tallies last last Tuesday were in fact not real votes, but part of a test run that the board had failed to clear from a computer, a computer, before posting the numbers to the public. So on Wednesday, the board, Board of Elections, released the new numbers showing, not official by the way, showing a a very tight race between Eric Adams 
and Catherine Garcia with uh, Maya Wiley trailing Catherine Garcia by 350 votes. We still don't have the absentee ballots counted or at least released. There are 125,000 absentee ballots that we're trying to figure out. This could shift the outcome drastically. Just as a recap, the Board of Elections is appointed. And in October of 2020, there was a story in New York City, in the, in the New York Times, about how the New York City Board of Elections was full of, at least the leadership level, full of patronage jobs, sisters, brothers, cousins, sons of current and former elected officials who, you guessed it, were from the establishment in New York. So my call initially was for us to start questioning the current elected officials who have family members in the Board of Elections and ask them why, you know, how that happened. Um, the New York Post and the New York Daily News have called to gut the New York City Board of Elections. I don't know what that means. That just makes me feel like, you know, when there's a disaster, they always want to blame the organization and not the establishment that kind of made that happen, whether it's not funding something uh, so that they can then go and privatize it. So you'll see it with like the MTA or with the power authority in, in Puerto Rico, using that example again, they will say, oh, PREPA, the power authority is just so, it's so inept. There's just so much patronage there. Well, it turns out it's probably severely underfunded and the patronage jobs are actually coming from the leadership level, not the talented uh, folks who work, you know, at the base. And so then the next thing they want to do is just keep starving them of resources and then privatize it. That is how this rolls. This is disaster capitalism 101. So the Board of Elections, it's kind of a peculiar agency to be working on disaster capitalism with. I think this should be a public utility. Obviously, it's not even a utility. It should be a public agency that is nonpartisan. Uh, but their version of nonpartisan is bipartisan. Key difference there. So you have patronage jobs to Republicans. Who knew there were Republicans in New York City? There barely are. It's like an empty vessel of a, a party. But of course, you know, they even still have their jobs at the Board of Elections. And of course, the Democratic machine. So this is the first ranked choice voting um, election that there ever has been in New York City. And they did not know how to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> Gary Bartlett, who's executive director of the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center, told WNYC Gothamist that they offered services to run a voting tabulation process using their universal Ranked Choice Voting Tabulator. Okay, key part. Uh, turns out the Board of Elections never returned their voicemail messages or emails. We don't know for sure uh, how soon we'll know the results. The absentee ballots may take a very long time. And my guess is that they're probably gonna have to run through it again because there is so much tension happening right now. This is the, the state, excuse, this is the largest city in the country. And we may not have a real sense of who the mayor is, but we will keep you updated. And uh, for those of you who are not in New York, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> it's not ranked choice voting's problem, but it is, you have to ask the right questions before you move into a new democratic system. I think that's what's key here is you have to make sure that the people who are overseeing your new democracy, uh, your new form of democracy, actually believe in it and are funded and are not inept. Very important. All right, first up today, we have Lindsay Boylan. She's gonna be talking about some of this dysfunction that's happening with the Board of Elections and also just how the establishment in New York continues 
the vibe of Tammany Hall. And then later we have Julia Doubleday. She's going to be talking about climate change and uh, just how it impacts pretty much every single aspect of society. But uh, she has some interesting takes on that. And then later we have an amazing panel where we're going to talk about the news of the day. So stick around. Lindsay Boylan is not only a community leader, she is most recently the former candidate for Manhattan Borough President of New York City, and she is an urban planner. She previously served as Deputy Secretary for Economic Development uh, and Housing for the State of New York under Governor Cuomo, who she's not in great, uh, <laughs> doesn't have a great relationship with now. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, from my perspective, we love her because Lindsay secured millions of dollars for underfunded public housing, led the state's efforts to provide assistance for the people of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and she pushed to enact the $15 minimum wage and paid family leave policy for New Yorkers in New York State. She previously served on community boards five and seven in Manhattan as well. There she is, live from a car in an undisclosed location. There you go. <laughs> you're looking like you're well rested. I mean, it's only a, a little over a week and a half since election day. And, you know, obviously the election will never end. Uh, but you look well rested. So that's yeah. always a good sign. <laughs> good. It's good. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm just really excited to have you on because uh, you've obviously been uh, in the city. And, and I know that that, you know, this is post-election is always really hard time because like you're, you're still kind of like working through all that stuff, which yep. I personally understand. Um, but so before we even get to what's going on with the board of elections, I just want to say thank you for stepping up courageously running and challenging an establishment that has on all ends has been, uh, as we're seeing, we're living through right now has been, uh, has taken the worst from Tammany Hall and kept it as a legacy in New York, I think is probably the safest way to say it. It's terrible for all of us, right? It's really bad. Yeah. Largest city in the country. Uh, supposedly this progressive uh, city when everybody thought the, the IDC was like, you know, unheard of, you know, then, then let's like zoom in on the board of elections. So, you know, I, I understand that like, obviously you've just run, but um, whatever you're able to say, feel free to say it. Uh, I don't think people are holding back much right now yeah. based on this debacle, but uh, for our audience, let me just run through some stuff because I think this is, this is important. Uh, the board of elections, of course, is an appointed board, unlike many other states. And uh, as we've discussed on the show before, there's a lot of nepotism. There are a lot of family members and friends and distant relatives of elected officials and former elected officials. Were you surprised by just how bad they handled ring choice yeah. voting? You know, what is it like that everyone's saying? I'd like to um, see the Democratic Party at my funeral so they can let me down one last time, like into my grave or whatever it is. Um, no, I'm not surprised. Uh, I have maybe the unique position of having observed as a candidate this this round a year ago uh, before RCV and just the unusual nature of county absentee ballots was such a production operationally. Even if you had people who were the best at what they did, um, who were well-resourced and well-prepared, that would have been a nightmare. And I think for me, more than anything else, it says how uninterested our democratic leaders are in people actually voting. 
you know, and having their voices be heard. Because at the end of the day, the best outcome for um, the Democratic machine in New York is if their people come out and no one else, they're not really interested in making it easy. And they're not really interested in making the system less opaque. Um, you know, I think there are a lot, I mean, we lost people who work at the board of elections during the pandemic. Um, you know, the, 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 the everyday person taking my petitions, working real hard under really tough conditions. The people who are to blame are the leaders, both at the board of elections and our elected leaders, including People like Jay Jacobs, people like the mayor in this case, people like Jay the Jacobs governor. Is the chair of the Democratic Party in this Yeah, state I mean, they, th- these people, these leaders are the ones who are supposed to anticipate major changes. And could we have had a more significant change than ranked choice voting? And I think in some respects, um, it doesn't benefit the machine and um, the Democratic Party to have these things go well. I mean, kind of like the MTA, the governor gets to um, blame someone else, even though behind the scenes he controls it. And I think this is very much the same. So um, maybe I'm a little bit more relaxed now because I know I'm not one of the top two, you know, gentlemen who who uh, who've been in this game for a long time and who are leading. So I'm just you know wanting this to work out and and not have people cross messaging that this is somehow voter suppression like Eric Adams. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a mess and anything that disenfranchises and, or not disenfranchises, but disenchants New Yorkers on our voting process and, and gives it the sense of integrity is really bad. Um, so it sucks <laughs> really There's bad. A, it's interesting because there is this, this, this thing that's happening in this city and, and nationwide, I think post Trump, probably earlier, probably from Occupy on, but but let's just say for like a, a more, a less progressive, more uh, normie Democratic voter, if I can yeah. <laughs> just say it that way. I think yeah. a lot of people are waking up to the fact that um, we need reform in this state and in this city. They, they were surprised when they saw the turnout rates and, um, you know, just, just people become more active. But simultaneously, there's this establishment that's been relying on kind of keeping a fairly democratic and 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 honestly a, a fairly progressive state. I think if you were to poll most Democrats in the state about where they stand on key issues, issues, yes. um, they would say, "Yeah, I'm for Medicare for all. Yeah, I'm for you know funding yes. the MTA. Yeah, I'm for fully funding public schools. Yeah, I'm for uh, you know public spaces for people. All about funding public housing. I mean, I think this for the most part." I'm anti-development. I don't want oligarchs buying up our city. I think a lot of yes. New Yorkers, most New Yorkers, most who are Democrats, would be in favor of these things. But the establishment in New York has, which is, of course, in the bed of, of, of real estate and the police unions up until maybe like a minute ago for some of them, um, you know, they've relied on keeping everybody blind to all this. And so like post-Trump in particular, people are like, yeah, voting reform sounds great. So they dismantle the IDC and they got all these voting reforms and the establishment, it's like the the two things are pushing up against each other. I mean, I always laugh when all these, what you call it, normie Democrats and everyone carries around copies of the power broker, like like the only person who's controlled a state and and influenced people's lives is Robert Moses. We've got we've got a few people like we've got a few men like that right now. And I think the governor is the most significant. What he's doing at the World Trade Center site with luxury development, um, all of the machinations around how we're going to spend federal aid. 
Um, you know, just as an aside, th- th- this people shouldn't have to live their lives in the election process in order for their government to work for them. But I think people like Andrew Cuomo and even Mayor de Blasio um, benefit from people not engaging as much. And, you know, you go door knocking as a candidate and you realize some buildings had polling sites in them purely so that they could reelect their leaders, like Shelly Silver, for instance, downtown. And all of the way things are set up um, is not democratic. And I just think it's really embarrassing that, um, you know, we we listen to women or people like Stacey Abrams and say, yes, what's happening there is so wrong. And then we have our own state, which will redraw the, um, you know, the election lines post census, and it will absolutely be done to preserve um, the establishment and who sits in those offices now. And, and, and I think we're seeing it in real time. In some ways, I think it's a false narrative to blame the everyday worker at the Board of Elections. I mean, these people are working hard. They've lost their colleagues, like so many New Yorkers. And like so many examples leaders, mostly old white men on high, do something to make a system fail and then find a way to blame the average worker, which I think happens even with our some of our failed union leaders. Like, um, I don't want to go into it, but look who was at the governor's million dollar uh, fundraising uh, dinner last week. It was it was party leadership, people, people like Keith Wright, who's supposed to be the Democratic Party leader for, for Manhattan. Um, people, you know, who are supposed to be serving their workers and their community, but instead they're, you know, sucking on the seat of power, frankly. Um, Governor Cuomo had a fundraiser last week where he raised a million dollars uh, at least, I think off of $10,000 tickets because, you know, that's, and by the way, that's not the cap. <laughs> and he could still sell hundred, you know, hundred plus tickets uh, because he still controls the budget, which is already done with. So it's very interesting that they're investing them now. Um, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the thing about Shelly Silver. So just for, for audience, I mean, not even New Yorkers who are, are newer. To I know. The I, sometimes I go to, thank you. It's okay. No, no, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm a geek. I used to live in that building where that polling site was on Grand Street. So you mentioned it and I was like, oh my God. It was very convenient for me to go vote. I'll just say that. But yes. Yeah. Um, I was a neighbor of, so Shelly Silver was the former Speaker of the Assembly not too long ago, but he'd been in an office for, I don't know, his whole life. But he was one of the, remaining, if not the last remnant of Tammany Hall, um, very young. I mean, I think his like mentor was from Tammany Hall and he ran the assembly and finally uh, through a slate of, of a slew of corruption scandals, including the speaker and, and the leader of the Senate um, and many others, you know, was, was actually sentenced to jail and has kind of been like, you know, going back and forth in his old age, uh, but a Democrat. And, and I think that's, this is the important part is like, it's, it's not that we don't, you know, not all Democrats obviously are corrupt. And it's not that that the state is full of Democrats that are corrupt. There's just this legacy of the worst habits of Tammany Hall of the power in a state where we should fundamentally be far more progressive. But yes. because we have, you know, Wall Street and, and real estate, two major interests yes. in the city, um, there's this, this tendency. And I, I think like what's very strange about right now, and I'm, I'm curious where you see this going is, I feel like, yes, there's a progressive shift, but simultaneously there's an effort to, oh my God, it's coming. We're going to have another progressive era, which came out of New York. How do we 
facilitate the same power structures within the progressive movement to keep them at bay because, you know, do you get what I'm saying? Like, Oh, I totally do. Going that way. I totally, I totally do. And I think it's enormously frustrating. And, you know, I I think probably the majority of the people in, in my borough president's race call themselves progressive, but I would say that the way that they've been able to move through the power structure is anything but what, in my view, progressive ideals are about. If you simply, you have to get in line. I mean, this is great to me. The fall of Scott Stringer in some respect, that's a machine in Manhattan. The Jerry Nadler, Scott Stringer machine has controlled and adjudicated who gets to be in and out. Corey Johnson a little bit too. Who gets to- Can you explain that a little bit more? What what that that means? You can't- um, you can't even go to a political club. Um, you will be booed out of the room um, if you don't get in line with um, Jerry Nadler, uh, which, of course, I have a penchant for not getting in line with with um, old white men in power. Um, but, you know, he, he, Scott Stringer worked for Jerry Nadler. And interestingly enough, if you look at most of the people that that machine has promoted, it's mostly older white men, with the exception, I think, of of women like Linda Rosenthal, who I believe dated Scott Stringer for a number of years. And this is not to debase any of the important work that people do, but if you are in the political sphere in Manhattan, for example, you know that the only way that you can safely move forward is by getting in line with those people. You won't even be welcome to political clubs that support them. You won't be um, offered interviews for important unions that are behind them. And this creates a system that makes it very hard to go your own way if you want to be successful. I'm quite certain that if I had decided to, you know, not open my mouth, not be the person that I am, I would have had a much easier road to getting to, you know, office. But if you have to trade everything that you're trying to do in order to get somewhere, you're not getting anywhere good. And I think that is we view these fights as kind of procedural and inside baseball. My husband, you know, who does not like politics. I think a lot of New Yorkers don't say, Oh, that's, that's in the weeds. But the reality is if we want to go back to the Robert, Robert Moses example, he controlled, you know, a dozen or so agencies and people didn't want to have to live their lives thinking about how things were controlled by a small number of hands and how that was influenced by Albany, which is not in New York city, but the power structure is in Albany. And it's a way to, um, obfuscate how power is adjudicated, who gets access to it and how it is bought. And, particularly right now in the city of New York, that is the real big concern, I think, is, is, is significant real estate developers and development. It, they control the process for everything. And I think even a lot of the reason why the building trades are standing by the governor is because they want their workers to get access to new infrastructure work and new construction. You can't really blame them, but it means that people have to participate in a corrupt system. And that has to end. And I think um, I have been heartened by, you know, organizations that choose to buck that trend. I do hold hope, particularly for things like ranked choice voting and for um, particularly women, women of color who are speaking out and who are challenging that system. It's still a marathon and you're still sucking wind the whole way. You know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't need to oh, tell I know. Real estate came after me. 
<laughs> yes. No doubt. They were like, oh, we don't know who went. Oh, I do. <laughs> Maybe the publications that attacked me were all funded by real estate developers. Huh, shocker. Scott Reckler. <laughs> Scott Reckler. Let's look at that example. He's been put on a bunch of boards, uh, a bunch of important uh, metro region decision-making boards mm-hmm. that control billions of dollars in investment. He is a very significant real estate developer. And he's also the chair of the 92nd Street Y. So in every possible way, this is a person who is um, influencing the decisions that are made by our city. And he's not an elected. He is not accountable to our people. And I don't really I don't really blame him because he's doing things for his own interest um, and his perception of what he thinks is best. But we didn't elect him. We didn't choose him. Yeah. And, and, but because and the governor wants on- to continue to elevate him. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think you're right because uh, the MTA board, for instance, the MTA, of course, is our, our subway, our our busing system, is our public transit system in New York City, and it is extraordinarily underfunded. And if you have spent two minutes in New York, you know very well, the trains don't run on time, they barely run, the signals are outdated, a million different things. The most famous, you know, subway-like uh, renovator had quit in frustration, uh, yeah. which doesn't leave us a lot of hope about fixing it. And he was amazing. He was one of the great <laughs> public servants that we had. Trained daddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, but that's that's a great, I mean, it's, if, if he can't fix it based on, the, frankly, the political dynamics, which I think he was pretty clear about, yes. um, you know, when you have an MTA board that houses real estate developers, you have to sit there and say to yourself, why are they on a transportation board? And what are they, which, you know, there were subway uh, uh, subway stops that were shut down for two, three years that happened to be in the, the fastest growing neighborhoods in New York, where, yep. of course, working people needed to get to their homes. And then they decided, yes. you know, for many reasons to move out because they couldn't. Who comes in and buys up those properties? Real estate developers. Simultaneously, here's the thing that really just just irks me because you do see a progressive movement that's decidedly not taking some real estate money, right? There's clever ways that they can still take it through other forms. But I understand the building trades wanting to protect their workers. I understand this partnership um, they're having with developers, but developers right now, the majority of this housing prior to the pandemic was being sold to the same people that we're all criticizing Donald Trump for being in line with. You know, nobody wants to touch this because because it's dangerous. The, yes. the, these, you know, there's, there's empty cash cow buildings throughout the city that are driving up the costs of, of living in those neighborhoods. People don't live there. Yes. They're just bank accounts for oligarchs and who knows what kind of money coming in. And this oh, is yeah. a big issue because especially in Manhattan, I mean, you're like the only person I know that lives in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. Yes. It's yeah, oh, I'll give I mean, another yeah. example. I mean, even people and and I have a lot of great colleagues from state service. They're not all like the governor. I think most of them are afraid of the governor, but there are a lot of really good public servants. Uh, the governor was trying to elevate Jana Lieber to really run, in essence, the MTA. His last, you know, his last full time job, I believe, was at Silverstein. He's a great guy, but on a personal level, but you have people and Silverstein Properties is one of the big players right now in pushing forth uh, luxury development at World the World Trade Center site. And I'm part of a coalition that is saying, no, we don't need any more luxury development at this time. If anything, we need 100% affordable and deeply affordable baking into the cake, the bullshit, excuse me, I'm not allowed to say that, um, mandatory inclusionary housing, which does 25, 35% of affordable, which is not affordable, doesn't do anything for anyone. And you continue to elevate people whose only experience or broad experience is 
how to develop this city for the benefit of luxury, um, you know, condos and, and, and apartments and Hudson Yards. And that's the only model they know. So even if they had the best of intentions, that's what you're going to get. And I think what we see all over this borough and all over this city is people who say, wait a second, you were saying this was going to get me affordable housing, give me the opportunity to stay in my community. And instead I'm being displaced or I am, you know, the, the human, human nature, the human sensibility of a streetscape that makes this an interesting place to live or a vital place to live is being destroyed by inhumane, massive, you know, uh, I don't want to like Star Trek style development at Hudson Yards, which is so inhospitable. I mean, you look up at, I live just south of it and you look up and you're like, where is New York? You know, what does this have to do with the people of New York? It looks nothing like New York. New Yorkers don't, I mean, it it, it doesn't feel like New York. There's no small businesses. I mean, this also obviously changes the, even in these like manufactured mini cities that are within Manhattan primarily in some, I mean, I live in Long Island city is happening in Brooklyn too, of course, but there are these like new, um, new communities that look like, like you said, they're like Star Trek, you know, they're, they're glass, yeah. glass neighborhoods where there's like three small business, three businesses um, in those neighborhoods, but they drive up the cost of living throughout the borough yes. and small businesses, of course, can't afford to maintain themselves. And uh, no. obviously, you know, if you do live in public housing in New York, which is still not affordable, you're forced to, to, to go to these, you know, larger businesses that are much yes. more expensive I mean, I used to make the joke that like a cup of coffee is five fifty in New York, not because of, of of fifteen dollar minimum wage. It's because the rent is so high. Yes, because everything gets That's inflated. True. Well, and by the way, I mean you you run into a great point. Whether we're talking about Fulton houses or Amsterdam houses, anywhere in Manhattan, and that's really my experience at this point. It's represented everywhere, but you know the extremes I think are really especially in Manhattan. What I hear about is they close my grocery store. Where am I supposed to shop? I can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. So you know what you end up having? You, you have people shopping at their local deli. And and hopefully they take EBT. Hopefully, you know, all, all of these things add up to make it impossible for most people to live. And I think the most pointed example of this is if you look at Amsterdam houses, which is like on the lower upper west side, right? Right behind Lincoln Center, right just south of LaGuardia. Um, high school, right amidst to its west, um, all of the kind of land um, giveaway development that happened along with, um, you know, the John Jay College, you know, zoning changes and and land, um, you know, passing over. You basically suffocated a bunch of um, residents living in NYCHA. There's nowhere for them to shop. There's nowhere for them to go. And you haven't invested in their and their quality of life in the buildings themselves. I mean, I walked in there door knocking and I saw more than one sign next to people's apartments that said, you know, lead contamination, don't breathe here, basically. Like, what? what is someone supposed to do with that? You know, all of this combines. And that's why a progressive movement is so important. And I think it's important to talk about these procedural things like ranked choice voting, like how we make it accessible for people to vote, like how we you know, um, how districts get drawn, because that in itself is a a huge indicator and determinant of actual progressive opportunity for change. Because I can tell you, it's not easy to break through. Um, No matter how many times you do it, I mean, we don't give up. And I want to say that message. I'm not anywhere near giving up. I've learned a lot and I have a lot more comrades, I would say, in the fight. 
but it, it's not easy and it shouldn't be so hard. That's an important point you make because, uh, you know, when ranked choice voting came through and maybe I'm just a jaded former candidate of New York City, uh, as I'm sure you know that feeling, I was suspicious at first because it simultaneously happened with an eight to one matching fund system. And my immediate sense was, oh, great. Every consultant, every every political establishment group is going to come in and throw three or four candidates and make a lot of money off of them with the opportunity of potentially pushing their candidate forward and pushing out any sorts of of, um, I think I knew that there while while in states like Maine and other in Australia where there are cleaner democratic uh, processes make it easier for people to rise up that are not part of the yeah. establishment. It becomes a tool for back deal, you know, backroom deals. So, but what you said about like more people turning out is obviously would shift this. If it was not about getting your key contingency or your constituency, yeah. excuse me, um, to vote. And it was about getting all New York Democrats to vote and it wasn't such low right. turnout, we wouldn't be in this situation. Well, and also, let's say if we had same-day registration, if we didn't have closed primaries, I mean, that's right. the kind of things that would really, I think, move the needle too. Nothing is perfect for, for all time, right? We do have to continuously work on things. But what I will say is I'm very glad for the public matching system. I think ultimately that and ranked choice voting will be really important changes. But I'll say a few things. I mean, I got in the race seven or eight months ago. Um, everyone else really had been in the race for at least a year. Uh, the two men who lead the race, you know, had over a million dollars each, a million and a half, including public matching funds, and they flooded people's mailboxes. I mean, how economic, how um, environmentally sound is it that we're using this paper and you know, just that? I think that one of the great opportunities of public matching funds is you could start to control to a certain extent how much and in what vehicles people's message gets out there so that actually you could start to see more about different candidates rather than just what ends up, you know, floating up because it it has the support of, you know, Ben Kalos kept talking about how he had a hundred unions behind him. And that was, you know, a year ago. Um, he didn't, you know, it doesn't look like he's in the running. Um, but if we really want to feed off of this system and make it truly equitable and, and empower people to vote for candidates that they believe in, then we're going to have to make some restrictions, I think, on numbers of mailers around how many things go out, both from an environmental standpoint and from how are voters supposed to, I mean, I think you saw any number of those vote, those pictures where people had put all over their floor, all the mailers they received. I mean, I didn't want those mailers and I'm a candidate. I was annoyed by them and I was in the same process. And I think the only way that we don't oversaturate people and turn them off and kind of recreate and perpetuate the system of, you know, a few well-off, you know, uh, consultants and candidates that machine supports is by having some controls on the avenues. You know, even, you know, some time ago, journalists got in, you know, we we got in the, the business of, not the business, but there's an ethics and propriety, you know, um, question around giving equal airtime to different candidates to a certain extent. And I think, Uh you know, broadly speaking, (laughs) journalists really try to support that. When are we going to think about, you know, physical mailers and how that impacts the outcome of a race and and all of that, particularly when um, different audiences, particularly by age, particularly by if it's only like pretty regular voters who are end up coming out for any number of reasons, 
we're not getting a good representation of our city and that should bother everyone. But as we started with, it doesn't bother everyone. The only people that are really bothered by it are those who spend the time either because they're candidates uh, and trying to you know, change the system um, you know, or because you end up being frustrated by a lack of movement on the issues you care about. Um, it's almost like we need a system like they have in parts of Europe where it's a, it's yeah. a limited campaign time period. Okay, cool. You get matching yeah. funds, but this is your limited period. And Canada. I mean, Canada does something similar too. Yeah. Got a lot to learn about democracy from other countries. <laughs> we do. We do. And that's the point, less right? Democratic. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, if I could be hopeful, and and I must be hopeful, right? Because I like to challenge the system. I like to challenge the powers that be, and I am eternally optimistic. But but we are always going to have a lot to learn, and I think we have a lot to learn at home. So before you know, every time you see the projections of people like Andrew Cuomo, people like any of our elected leaders, looking at some other state, some other place, and talking about um, you know accessibility and um, representation. I think it's casting aspersions because they don't want to focus on what's going on at home. And it should be a sign in your mind and our minds that um, we've got a real problem. I mean, we, at the end of the day, we've got to get rid of these guys, truthfully. Yeah. <laughs> All politics is local, right? Yes. Yes. That's it. Lindsay Boylan, hope you're well. Hope you get a little yeah. bit of a break. Hope you get Good. some summer well, rest. Well, you know, and you I got cool. my dog. And <laughs> <gasps> oh, my God. This is like, wait, this is like a it's my post campaign dog. It's actually my daughter's dog, but she's at camp, which is why I'm in a car. So, wait, what's his name or her name? Her name, of course. Her name, Truffle, like the chocolate. Oh my god, I also like the mushroom. She loves politics. Oh, she does clearly. She's made for TV. Look at her, she's gonna be a pundit. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Okay, (laughs) we'll just freeze on that for a bit. Yeah. Post campaign dog, enjoy, enjoy puppy time, enjoy daughter time uh, at camp, and I hope you get some some rest and relaxation. Yeah, thanks for all you do. I'll see you soon. Take care. All right, we will be right back with Julia Doubleday to talk about climate climate change. We're all dying of heat right now. We're going to talk about what's going on with that. You guys know I love my Sunset Lake CBD, mainly because I can't handle the other stuff. Uh, I always feel like I have no legs when I have the other stuff. And I even made the mistake recently of doing the other stuff. And I was like, oh, that's why I don't like it. And that's why I like Sunset Lake CBD, because they're the real deal. They calm me down, help me sleep. They've got tinctures. They've got salves. They've got chocolate. They've got dog biscuits that humans can eat or you can eat with your dog and do something weird with them. Uh, All sorts of stuff. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. They have something for everybody. It is all designed to help with your aches and pains. Uh, They were originally a dairy farm in Vermont. It was actually the Ben and Jerry's dairy dairy farm. And then they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour and employees own the majority of their company. And they support independent media like the Nomi Key Show, the Majority Report, and the David Pakman Show. I uh, use the tincture now to get through my jet lag. I'm dealing with a lot of jet lag here. But it's, you know, I think I have like four days more of it. It usually takes me about a week when I go this far. Uh, But they're helping. They're helping me sleep through the night. Last night, like it really made a difference. Um, I basically fell asleep at dinner. I was like sitting there and then it certainly, suddenly it was just like, 
I swept into a deep sleep and then I had to be carried out of the restaurant and put into, no, I'm kidding. No one carried me out, but Sunset Lake CBD does help me sleep, especially when I have jet lag, because you'll just wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, all right, I'm ready to go because it's like 9am back where I live and it's not here. Uh, so I'm a big fan of the tinctures. I'm a frequent, frequent tincture buyer. I do love the gummies, but the gummies do not like me. The sugar does not like me, but I recommend them for those who do like sugar. You can get a discount of 20% off at sunsetlakecbd.com by typing in Nomi, N-O-M-I. Very simple, sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. And then they also always have deals. So sign up for their list. Uh, once you buy some products, you'll get on their list. They're great people. We love them. Go support them because they support us. Listen, everybody, it is 7.15 p.m. where I am, so I have earned the right to have a half a glass of wine. Okay, uh, our next guest is Julia Doubleday. She's the deputy director of committee and, of course, is a co-host, deputy host, sure. I don't know how you call it. Promote me a little bit. <laughs> sure, at the committee program, uh, which airs here on this channel on Mondays. You know her from our show, from our show and there. Um, Julia... Question of the day is, what is the temperature where you are? It's got to be in the 90s. I'm in D.C., so um, somewhere in the 90s. It's been in the 90s all week, although it may have cooled off a little bit because we had a surprise, like, tornado warning last night where it was, like, storming really badly. So, yeah, it's been, like, you know, kind of D.C. summer hot, and um, then I got this, like, weather alert, which we're all getting used to getting just constantly. I got a weather alert on my phone at nine last night that was like, tornado incoming, you know, go downstairs, go hide in your basement. Nothing happened, but um, it's never, you never love to get that. No. We used to, I used to, growing up in Buffalo, we'd get them every once in a while and it was like a creepy thing. My biggest um, nightmare, the recurring nightmare is about tornadoes. Probably since I saw Twister in the movie. It's just- Word, year, yeah. Yep. Just like, I was afraid of that as a kid. Cause I also, I grew up in Atlanta. So- uh, in Atlanta? I don't know. Oh like yeah, anything. it's a thing. It's a thing. They would they would teach us like tornado safety and we'd have tornado drills. They just scared the shit out of us. All right, kids. So all right, tornadoes in DC. It's a million degrees where I'm in Greece, but that's always every summer. But there's fires on different islands, and you know, it's what's happening. So um with that being said, <laughs> ExxonMobil, who is just one of the biggest backers of this climate disaster that we're in, was just like, let's just double down on this shit. And people are sh shocking. People are like on the inside are like, I don't know if I really buy this. Uh, there was a video leak this week that's, that's making the rounds. Um, and I think the juxtaposition of this video being leaked the week that uh, a Miami building collapses due to not regulations and like inspectors and all this kind of stuff, which is also an issue by the way. Uh, but climate, because Florida is sinking. There's like sinkholes in Florida, by the way, all the time where buildings like fall into the sinkholes um, or cars fall into the sinkholes. So it happens this week also as like New Yorkers are being told to turn off their air conditionings because that's going to end it all. And like, you know, reminder, like it doesn't come down to individuals. Uh, so the juxtaposition of these things has been profound. Uh, let's roll this clip of on CNN talking about this leak. Did we aggressively fight yeah. against um, uh, some of the science? Yeah. Uh, yes.
join some of these shadow groups uh, to work against uh, some of the early efforts. Yes, that's true. Uh, but there's nothing there's nothing illegal about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were looking out for our investments. We mm. were looking out for our, our in uh, uh, our shareholders. Congressman so-and-so to be able to to introduce this bill. We need him to make a floor statement. We need him to send a letter. You name it. We've asked for everything. While some of my comments were taken out of context, let's roll that back real quick. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Keith McCoy says, I am deeply embarrassed by my comments and that I allowed myself to fall for Greenpeace's deception. My statements clearly do not represent ExxonMobil's positions on important public policy issues. While some of my comments were taken out of context, there's no excuse for what I said or how I said it. I apologize to all of my colleagues at the company and my friends in Washington, D.C., all of whom have a right to expect better of me. the senior director of federal relations at ExxonMobil. I love how he's not like, I apologize to the citizens of the world mm-hmm. and to the penguins and to <laughs> everybody's forced to take off, turn off their air conditioning, but to my pals in DC and all of my colleagues at work. Yeah, he like, is very upset that video leaked of him talking about what Exxon does and being honest about it. So that's what he's apologizing for not advocating against um, apocalyptic climate change uh, nope. legislation. He is he's literally only apologizing for being caught on video. Being caught on video and also like the pushback for, you know, right. I, 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 you're a creature of DC, a good creature of DC. Sort of. Always, <laughs> no, but it's amazing. Sometimes like these people are such frogs, meaning they've been boiled down. They're like boiled frogs or that they like don't even realize when they're saying something that shouldn't be said out out loud. Um, Yes. I would say that's definitely true in DC. Like I've been at parties where people will just sort of openly say things that um, democratic candidates or people who are talking to the public wouldn't say. So like, you know, I remember at a party, someone said to me like that they liked Katie Porter, even though she like made the mistake of running on Medicare for all or something like that. Like people will just openly, and this is like a democratic operative who works in a democratic office. It's like this open secret environment of like, well, no, you're not like openly to the public going to say like, obviously we don't actually support Medicare for all, but it, like in behind closed doors, it's like fine to say that. Um, and, I th- and similarly, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she was campaigning against Trump, Trump sort of um, forced her to come out against the TPP because he was then against the TPP. Uh, but my friends who worked on the Hill after the election, one of them 
you know, just made a comment that was like, well, yeah, of course, Hillary would have signed the TPP. And it wasn't like this person was a Hillary supporter. It wasn't like that they were like, uh, you know, slandering her. They were like, well, yeah, obviously, of course, of course, she was lying to the public. <laughs> it's just total normal. But but this is the creatures of, of Washington. They're so flippant about this. Right. Um, you know, and I, I, I know we didn't pre-discuss this, but there's this Donzinger case where the lawyer who sued ExxonMobil mm-hmm. uh, in in representing indigenous indigenous families and women in particular who have been severely affected by uh, what what the government has like you know they they ruled in favor of the indigenous women and now he's sitting under seven hundred days of house arrest in an unjust system. I mean the power that Exxon has or Chevron has or any of these companies have is so ginormous. I know it's not a shock and it's like no news to anybody, but at a moment like this in particular, I think this is why I feel frazzled is you, you, Florida, right? You have Ron DeSantis, climate denier, COVID denier, possible front runner for Republican presidential election next time around for as a nominee, maybe, maybe not. Um, he's polling better than everybody else except I'm, for Trump. I'm calling it for Trump. I'm calling it for Trump I mean, right now. We're going to get Trump. four more years of Trump. God, stop. <laughs> Unless, he's like run, Unless he's, he's dead. Unless he's dead. Only God can stop Trump. Or in jail. They're like, hurry that up. Um, but DeSantis, I mean, you have DeSantis and, and, and obviously there's the Marco Rubio situation and there's plenty of others, you know, uh, Matt Gates, whoever else, you know, whatever climate deniers are in Florida. And yet, if you were to poll the people of Florida, especially Southern Florida, I'm not even, I'm Republicans included, I know some of them who are like, no, my building flooded. I know it exists. What is it going to take? What is it that's missing to close this gap where the public, I mean, this is across you have Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage. All of these issues are tremendously popular. And, and like the crises are in front of our faces and we can barely even get Democrats to side right. with us on these issues. What is going on? The old, the old tricks aren't working. We got to yeah. change strategy. What's missing is democratic representation. So I think it's really important that we are honest with ourselves about what our government is and in it and isn't. I think, um, you know, part of the mythology of America, uh, the American exceptionalism myth, as well as the myth that um, America is this shining city on the hill, Um we characterize ourselves as needing to spread democracy in other countries because we understand what democracy is and how democracy works. I think there's something really telling that that lobbyist said, um, the part of the quote where he said, nothing that we did was illegal. So again, you know, it's not about ethics, morality, or democracy. It's about, is this legal or is this not legal? Now, as a lobbyist, of course, he understands the way those laws get made, the laws that determine is something legal, is something illegal. Um, He's very much a part of that process. So it's sort of this self-fulfilling cycle of like, okay, well, we want to do something. Let's lobby to make it legal. And then we're going to do it. And now it's fine. You know, so um, there's this arbitrary line between what's acceptable behavior, what's unacceptable behavior that's really been drawn by the oligarchy uh, in this country. So I think we do have to reckon with the anti-democratic underlying structures in this country, because, you know, one thing that we saw with the the Russia freak out, Russia gate, you know, it was just this nonstop years and years and years of this coverage of like Putin 
bought Facebook ads and that, and now we don't have a democracy anymore. In the meantime, you know, you have Exxon in all these nominally legal ways deciding what our climate policy is going to be. And nobody is treating that as this huge threat to democracy. So if we care about democracy, we want to preserve democracy. We want to preserve this idea of representation, equal representation for everybody. Then money in politics and uh, special interest groups lobbying uh, government officials in this way, this is something that should really be in in our sights. This is just not, it's completely anti-democratic. Um, there can be no democracy as long as these practices are allowed to continue. And simultaneously, I mean, just to, to move on to the water issue, which is is not new. I mean, this is, I, I first started, after I started doing campaign work, I got into like water advocacy through an organization I worked for a few years ago, um, over a decade ago, I shouldn't say that a few years ago, we we were monitoring what was happening in in parts of Africa uh, through French companies like Nestle, where they were running around and essentially trying to expand their 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 empire. <laughs> So, yeah, by controlling um, public water supply. And of course, it moved into places like Flint and to Buffalo as uh, recessions hit, you know, over a decade ago after the economic collapse. And, and now it's like full force. It's like we talked about this in the show actually a couple of days ago, where why is it that that austerity politics is still popular when the results are in? Austerity politics, water uh, supplies being privatized you know, power power agencies, power grids being privatized, you name it, public schools being, you know, turned into charter schools. The results are in, and yet you still have in municipalities all over the country, as, as is listed in a lot of these pieces, you still have Democrats who think that this is the way out, is to privatize water grids. Um, so let's, let's, or not water grids, water systems. Uh, let's like debunk this. What's What's happening here? So privatization is uh, one of the major pillars of neoliberalism uh, for people who are believers in neoliberal economic policy. They believe that it's more efficient to privatize everything. Obviously, as you said, the, the results are in. It's actually not effective at all. Um, but it is effective uh, in the sense of lining uh, the pockets of corporate actors. So it's doing what it's designed to do, which just isn't what they're claiming it's designed to do. So I think, again, this just comes back to money and politics. Uh, when people get into these positions of power, they very often, they have to basically move through a lot of phases of their career where if they um, are not willing to go along with the status quo, then they're removed from that position or they're not allowed to stay in that position. Um, and additionally, you know, with these corporate actors contributing to campaigns and choosing essentially who's going to win these elections, uh, they choose very carefully. They make their choices carefully. They find people who, um, you know, there there's certainly people who are, you know, just sellouts. They don't believe in any of this stuff and they just want attention. Um, there are also true believers. There are people who are like, no, like this is, you know, I'm a dyed in the wool um, neoliberal, I think this is the best way that things are going to work. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if they buy them or if they already believed that. It just matters that they find candidates that agree with them and give those people money. And that's how, you know, these people maintain but, their power. But with that being said, the fewer true believers there are, which I feel like there are fewer, they're yeah. older, 
Um, yeah, definitely. And and the more you know, people that are are younger and have to face the wrath of the progressive movement, which I you know I still worry about because it's not like people you know don't sell out uh, when rising up. I mean, we can get a lot of people elected, and they just have. To, how do we make sure that they maintain their progressive base and their alliances with the progressive? We've seen many people turn um, over the years, so. You know, is that is that sort of? I mean, just in terms of power, like if we have fewer Nancy Pelosi's and fewer Amy Klobuchar's and and more Jimmy Gomez's, and I, I'm just trying to think of Congress members that have yeah. Appeal. I to mean, it depends how much power they can wield on their own and how much their power derives from corporate donors. So if they're not going to be able to hold on to that seat without their corporate donors, then they functionally have no power. You know, they're they're puppets, essentially, like um, they have to do what their donors want or they're going to be out of office. They know that. Um, and it's sort of a it's the illusion of power. But this is sort of the managerial class for the actual oligarchy. Um, so they don't actually have much choice in the way that they govern. So what we need, obviously, is to elect people with a much broader base of donors. Um, there's certainly certainly once there gets to be. Um, you know, a consensus around an issue. There are political actors who will maybe break free a little bit and say, okay, you know, I'm going to go more in this direction. So I don't, I don't get so hammered by the progressives. Um, but again, it just, it depends on who's electing them, um, who's putting them into that seat. Because if them coming out for progressive priorities means they're no longer going to have power, then they're just never going to do it. Are there any electives that are courageously, I don't mean standing up for climate, but taking on oil and gas specifically? Yeah, I mean. I think I, I think that that space, like if you take on oil and gas, you're also creating a space in which it's safer to go against privatization of water and all these other utilities that, you know, fairly like they, they're given space because. Right. Because other mechanism out there. Right. I mean, it's the usual suspects, obviously, um, Bernie Sanders and the Justice Democrats. Again, like when it comes to people on the left who were elected by um, small dollar donations and grassroots organizers, they just don't have any incentive not to listen to the public, which that's how democracy is supposed to function. You know, you're supposed yeah. to be accountable to people who elected you, not um, gigantic special interest lobbying groups. Oh, that's, that's a crazy concept, Julia. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> I know. about, you crazy lady. It's wild. <laughs> okay, uh, in other news, I, I don't understand speculation and this business that's going on. So can you tell, tell us Yeah, I like, would love to talk about that. Um, I'm so, a third grader, so please talk to me like a third grader. This is like a completely foreign concept to me. Yeah, so something that um, I think has flown under the radar in terms of climate change is that we need to be worried about the future of food and water. We were just discussing the privatization of water. Um, we've also seen the privatization of um, GMO seeds, the privatization of um, food technology around the world. This is setting the stage for something very concerning. Um, you know, we've seen in the last year, I think actually... Even I, who I'm a very cynical person about uh, politicians, I, even I was shocked by the way that um, COVID was handled, which is essentially just as much as possible, insulate the rich, let the poor die. Insulate the rich, let the poor die. 
And that is definitely the game plan for climate change. So when we look at um, food and water supply, um, that's something that's not even on people's radar yet, because in the West, we just haven't gotten to that point where we're rationing food or rationing water. But already, you know, as you were saying this week in New York City, they're messaging people that they need to ration their energy. And when I was in Texas a couple of weeks ago, they're messaging people that they need to ration their energy rations are going to be our reality because of climate uh, if we don't aggressively tackle what's happening. Um, you know, in terms of food, there's not really a way to expand the arable land that we have on earth at this point. We've we've cultivated everything that is available to be cultivated. The remaining forested areas need to remain forested. Um we know that we have a rising population and to just quickly address population growth as, um, you know, we, we never want to characterize it in this sort of eugenicist way. We never want to characterize it as this idea of like, oh, poor people are having too many children. And that's why, you know, the earth is overrun because quite, quite obviously it's a, it's a structural issue. Um, that being said, of course, logically, the earth cannot hold an infinite number of people. The solution there, just to quickly dispel this myth, is um, wealth, redistri wealth redistribution, properly resourcing everyone on the planet, and women's reproductive freedom in any place, in any part of the world where people have access to their own reproductive uh, control over their own reproductive health, as well as um, being properly resourced. Uh, the population stabilizes. So it's just not, it doesn't have to be this big thing about, you know, killing people, sterilizing people. Like that's, we shouldn't play into that overpopulation myth. Um, but again, the solution is, I'm hundred percent sure. <laughs> again, the solution is quite simply to create a more equitable society. We won't have to worry about that issue, but when it comes to having, um, more food for more people at a time when we're also seeing this, um, these really terrifying climate disasters, um, we need to increase the yields of the seeds that we do have. Um, so all this is just to say that we're going to see, a, there's an impending food crisis and there's an impending uh, water crisis as well. Let me actually just um, read to you a few quotes um, about water shortages as investment opportunities. Um, so a Bloomberg news headline read, this is way back in 2006, water is outperforming oil. Um, China daily ran a front page story on the water crisis with a positive spin. The quote is water will emerge as the new gold and an integral part of future global security, private equity and venture capital firms have been spearheading the green gold rush. Um, according to investment specialist Jim Powell, water is an even better commodity than oil because unlike oil, there's no substitute for water. Uh, and Rainier Ottoman, head of fund sales at KBC Bank Deutschland, said water may be the most underestimated resource in comparison to tr traditional resources because it has much more significance to humans. So creepy dystopian quotes of the day. All of that also, I want to um, give credit to Joel Bourne, who's the author of a really fantastic book called The End of Plenty, which is... Um, all about this, um, all about this impending crisis. So to get into speculation, finally, sorry, I went on a tangent to talk a little bit about, you know, why we need to be worried about food and water supply in the coming decades. Um, to get into speculation, what that essentially means is that um, investors come into the marketplace and they can bet on whether the price of 
like corn or wheat or rice is going to rise and they can make money off that. And it used to be that speculation was limited. There's something called position limits in the agricultural commodity markets. What that means is that, um, okay, so let's envision a typical marketplace. I'm a farmer, I grow cereal, I take all of my corn to the marketplace and then a cereal company buys my corn to make cereal. That's like a typical, you know, buyer, there's a seller. Speculation can perform a a efficiency, a helpful role in the marketplace by basically saying, okay, there's a bunch of sellers that want to sell their goods, but there aren't any buyers right now. So I'm going to come in, I'm going to buy while the price is low, and then I'm going to sell when those buyers want to buy later on. So that can create some you know, advantages uh, for everyone. But that speculation needs to be limited because if it's not, then what you get is the speculators themselves start driving these really large price bubbles. Um, So what we've seen happen since the repeal of position limits, which basically happened in 2000, in the year 2000, as part of this sort of neoliberal financial deregulation, uh, is we've seen speculators just rushing into this marketplace. They went from being, you know, 15% of the market to being 60% of the market. Um, And what this means is that they're actually creating um, price spikes. So when you go back and look at 2011, 2012, 2014, all of these times when food prices were spiking and they were the incipient factors for things like the Arab Spring, um, that was because of these Uh, speculators in the market coming in and buying up so many futures contracts um, that it created a a supply crunch. So all of this is to say that this speculation in commodities markets needs to be re-regulated because what we're ending up, if you take everything I've just talked about and sort of look at it in a three-dimensional way, we're heading into a time where we're going to see food supply diminish, water supply diminish, population growth, arable land diminish, and you have investors who can make money off increasing water prices and increasing food prices. So in other words, they're directly and financially benefiting from poor people being unable to access food and water. That's the economic system that we've built. That's totally inefficient. It has really bad incentives. It doesn't even matter whether you think, um, you know, that whether you care about poor people starving and dying or not, if you want to build an efficient economy, this is just not the way to do it. It makes no fucking sense. (laughs) Well, you know, robots don't need to eat fresh food. So if your economy is built by robots, then, uh, you know, it should be fine. But we, I hate to say it, we're not an information-based economy. We're in a consumer-based economy. So it turns out you need to have people alive to eat these things and drink water and buy things. Yeah, Julia, Love class with you. That was great. <laughs> Best teacher ever. Thank you. Funniest yes. Teacher ever. Yes. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed Come it. Back soon. Okay. I will. All right. Thanks for uh, dealing with my little frozen. I don't know what happened. I froze up. Lost the internet for a second. Whatever. This is what happens when you're in a failed state. What up, Lauren? Lauren Ashcraft is the host of the new show, Biting Commentary. She, of course, ran for Congress in my district, New York 12, in 2020. She was a uh, 
a board member for the Women's March Alliance and the founder of Collection Box Comedy. What's up, Lauren? How you doing? Hey, Nomiki. It's so good to see you. I'm great. So good to see you too. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, I mean, who else would I have on? Uh, <laughs> okay. So we're talking about climate and you're in New York right now. Is your air conditioning on? Lauren, actually, are you I- listening to them? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I am out of state this oh. this week. How dare you leave your district? We lost your camera. We lost you. This oh, no. Can you- anyway, you're back. You're back. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, Don't apologize no. for systemic issues. That's not your job. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Zoom's job. <laughs> I am out of state this week, but um, I, ha- I have had a few friends say they've had some electricity flicker, but nothing too mm. major. Um, so climate scientists are now saying that nowhere is safe from the kind of extreme heat waves that have hit Western United States and Canada in recent days. And also, if I could add, just not to be North American focused, I'm in Europe and the same shit's happening here. Uh, but it's okay. The New York Board of Elections is here to see. <laughs> oh my I want to put these things together because they're, it's really important that people understand it's interconnected. It is. You've heard it frogs, is. you get it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just our democracy is crumbling when we most need it. And we're just seeing kind of everything. I kind of am I'm sitting back and watching everything kind of crumble at the same time. So I think you're you're not wrong that it all is interconnected in a way. Okay, relatedly, because that was a great little segue. Um, number one or two, can't really tell. Uh, defender of our democracy crumbling is the person who thinks that keeping the filibuster is more democratic. I can't really wrap my head around it. And also having the filibuster is bipartisan when actually when you don't have the filibuster, it forces Republicans or whoever's in charge to work with Democrats, whatever it is. You have to have bipartisan deals that way. Kirsten Cinema, um, they're going for the jugular. They're going for the jugular. Turns out her staff don't love, haven't loved working for her. A lot of unnamed sources from her office have described her office environment as being toxic. Uh, Seven former staffers and interns, most of who want to remain anonymous, uh, have come out and said that their entire, like they've had, it's the worst job they've had their entire lives. One former cinema staffer, not an intern. Uh, talked about her Capitol Hill experience. It kind of ruined my aspirations in politics. Cinema's office says it is incredibly common uh, for there to be turnover among junior staff in Capitol Hill um, due to career changes. And and then they said that no turnover at all has been been among senior staff uh, since, since she started in 2019 in the Senate. Of course, this is not necessarily related to her congressional office or her state Senate office or any other offices. Kirsten Cinema actually was an intern for a winery like recently. So that, that, that was like looped in like, if anybody understands intern culture, it's Kirsten Cinema who has a full-time job. And I don't know, what does it mean to be like an intern at a winery? Cause I want to do it. You get to do you, do you get to taste test the wine? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, we're pre-taping this show, show so everybody knows it is seven forty-five p.m. where I am, and it is morning where you are. So don't judge me. <laughs> well, I I would not judge you even if it were noon for you. So. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, this is I, I, this is so fascinating to me because 
on one hand, I'm like, obviously, Senate offices and 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 many senators have toxic work environments. I think it's more a revelation of just the culture of working in Washington and politics. Some of sometimes I'm like, we have to find ourselves in the middle. Like it's a high pressure work environment, especially if you're working on a campaign. Um, you know, we could talk about the Diane Morales campaign. Like, you know, you can't just abandon proven electoral strategies to, you know, for whatever reasons. So there's there's an in-between. But but I think this actually reveals something much bigger. And you, as somebody who's worked in comedy, I think this is where it kind of the roots emerged from. Is the only way to hold people accountable now or elected officials accountable through cancel culture? I mean, and, and I, I'm not trying to be like like Len Greenwald or Tucker Carlson or any of these people with cancel culture. I'm saying it from a perspective of legitimate or illegitimate claims. I mean, smear campaigns have always been a thing in politics, mm-hmm. but it seems like that's the only protests aren't working. Defunding isn't working. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm Joe Biden even was canceled and he's still won the election. Uh, you know, Britney Spears is is still under conservatorship and and Bill Cosby is like free now. I mean, th- what's working? What is to work? And is this a strategy? To t- is it going to work? I mean, I think uh, one of the trends I'm noticing from what you just said is the people who get canceled are women. So I, <laughs> I think it's all wrapped up in this power protects power and misogyny mm-hmm. is part of that culture. Um, I think with cinema, like there is enough to criticize her on policy wise that I already really dislike her because of the way that she votes and acts in the Senate. Um, And let's face it, a lot of these people in the Senate and in Congress are horrible people and also probably terrible bosses. (laughs) But um, I mean, let's cancel her for for wanting to keep people oppressed and poor. And, uh, you know, standing against ending the filibuster, which is a huge block for democracy. So I think, I mean, I, Bill Cosby should have been canceled. Now he's free. It's I think it's all just part of this whole. It's so much easier to come after women and to hold them to different standards than everybody else. Well, how much of it is because the. The economy, the, the, the because capital is controlling the mechanisms now in a way that was not as strong and 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 um, like consolidated, I guess, a few years ago. And so, so what happens is you have a situation in which um, the mechanisms of releasing information are more or less controlled by whether it's algorithms or you know, companies that have like the largest YouTube channels now online and obviously have cable news, whereas five or six years ago, they didn't have a presence on there. And simultaneously, you know, you can buy a troll army to fight off your fight or suppress your fight or smear or spread misinformation or smears or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's just, it's just really interesting to see how these things are orchestrated now versus how they were several years ago. And oftentimes, as you said, it's, it's, it's pushed towards women. I mean, it's, it, in my opinion, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, it's like the public flogging. It's like the scarlet letter. I don't know if it's going to work for cinema because she is backed by capital, but like there is something happening specifically with women. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think it's, um, it's all kind of related. I mean, I see, I mean, I've had journalists try to come after me. (laughs) I've had people build troll armies against me. And I think, um, I mean, it, it's 
it's been done. People try to do it towards a lot of the women I know. And I, I, I hope that a lot of the strong women that I rely on as allies out there um, can remain strong and keep doing exactly what they do. Um, this is to say I'm not defending cinema because, again, I think she's a very terrible person, but so is basically 99% of the Senate. So let's get all of them out. If we're going to go after her, I mean, I've never been a fan of the whole, like, look what she's wearing. She has pink hair type of stuff either. So um, let's cancel her for her shitty policies. And also, you know, if you're going to be a feminist icon, supporting the $15 minimum wage would be a great way to, up, you know, completely uh, uplift women across the country. Right. Exactly. And I think, I mean, the fact that she stood in the way of increasing the minimum wage probably does speak to her abilities as a boss and leader in the workplace. So, uh, I mean, there's probably some serious truth there. It's just, I just see again and again that we're only looking at women. Like I, I see it too with AOC. She's held to way different standards than everyone else. And she's like one of the only allies we have that works in DC right now. So I just, I feel like women, especially uh, women of color, women of color that have opinions, um, there's just huge targets on all of them. Especially if they're running against capital. I mean- yeah. That's, I think, the biggest issue here is we've talked about this a lot on the show with with um, certain left hosts dragging women of color who are allies and not dragging men who may try to campaign on being progressive or say they're progressive for political ambitions. And I mean, from my perspective, that is very old school divide and conquer. You know, it is so easy to flip people who make their money off of clicks. When I say flip, I mean politically flip them. Yeah. What I want to see is when, like, it's not advantageous to speak out for something. And so, anyways, um, I, you know, it's happening across the board. It happened in the New York City's mayor's race. Well, people, there are plenty of candidates that were imperfect. I know you and I can both agree on this. Yes. What happened with Diane Morales was not handled in the best way, at least from my perspective. With that being said, take a magnifying glass to any of these other candidates and yeah. how they run there. I mean, what, there was a candidate in the race who notoriously was physical against his people. I mean, behind the scenes, without naming names, I don't want to get sued, but like, <laughs> this wasn't a rumor. I personally know people who worked for this person yeah. years ago and those stories never came out. And I'm just like, at a moment where Di Morales seemed to be sneaking up on potentially being um, the favorite second choice or second favorite second choice in, the, in this round, suddenly the hits came in. And did she handle it properly? Probably not. But she's also not somebody who has an establishment behind her or institutions behind her or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely uh, there's something to be said about like how the press is not necessarily the most sophisticated when it comes to how political machinations um, play out in these crowded fields. You yeah. Found, what do you think? I mean, particularly with the Diane Morales thing, I know I personally backed away from support, although I think, you know, there's, there's one story, there's probably three sides to the story and um, some truth on both sides. And I think just the, just the drama surrounding all of it is what really pushed me away. But I will say I kind of quietly backed away and was really upset and not surprised to see how many people were salivating on the sidelines, just like 
really excited. Like she, they were excited that she was just plummeting. And I think, I mean, that that's, it goes back to the same thing we were talking about is like our society is so ready to just eat up women, um, especially women of color. And um, as somebody who's run for office, I will say what she has been going through and what she probably is still going through was my worst nightmare. And um, just, just the falling apart and ripping apart of everything that you represent in the public eye, um, it, it must be terrible. So as a human, I, I feel really, really badly for her. And to see people still just like really enjoying it and um, for ranking who I think you're speaking about, um, for ranking the person that I had been advocating against supporting, um, it's very clear to me that we're on very different pages. Different pages in what sense? Um, so if you unranked Diane, which I myself did, but then ranked somebody else who's notoriously a terrible person and boss, um, I, you know, every, I think most people know exactly who this is. Well, that person's not going to be mayor. So let's just, <laughs> there's no chance in hell. So um, yeah, exactly. have a nice retirement. I mean, <laughs> listen, I've, I've been publicly flogged. I went through an iteration of this where some idiot on Twitter was like, oh, Nomi died. So Diane Morales or Nomi lives. So Diane Morales could die. And I wanted to be like, really great. Awesome. So let's talk about how uh, that's working. I mean, I, I won't get into the weeds, but, and I legally actually can't get into the weeds because, because we're in a legal thing against the people who went after me, but the, the press didn't ask questions, didn't call me, never got a phone call from the press asking me a question about how this, you know, story was spread. And meanwhile, I, I mean, stuff that was verifiably false, like categorically, like Google it was spread around. What is it? The, the old line you know, a lie spreads around the world before you you tie your shoelaces. Um, and very legitimate press, New York Times, Politico, Daily News, you know, members on Twitter were in places they couldn't do in print on their public, on their, their sites, spread misinformation. And when I responded to them, they were like, well, I'm just on Twitter. No, you're trying to ruin somebody's life and the reputation yeah. that they built up for 20 years. I've been working in politics for 20 years. And some of this stuff is so effing verifiably false it's comical yeah you would rather be part of the firing squad because it's fun and you get your little like high for a minute rather than actually doing the research and i had very different situation than diane morales did but bottom line is this is the game this is how it works now and you're right it's happening to women more often it did not happen the same way even with some of the larger scandals in new york city politics this cycle it still didn't happen the same way i mean eric adams has he had an investigation on him and like no one ever mentioned it. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And I think, I think about like how Cuomo is still in office. I think that's one of the, the biggest examples I can think of is uh, like, you can think of, you know, maybe Diane Morales wasn't, wasn't, you know, didn't really know how to handle a staff dispute or I don't know exactly what happened there, but Cuomo has been accused of sexual assault from multiple women. And he's still our governor. And he has a really big chance of winning again. Yeah. I have, well, I, he controls the budget. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Power. If yeah. you're in power or if you have institutions at your back, you will be you will be protected. 
if you're an independent person running, specifically women, it is going to be far, far more difficult. And, um, you know, I think ultimately that their fear was that a Bernie Sanders or somebody would come in and, and support me. And they had to make it so that they wouldn't do that because that, you know, in a low turnout election, I'm, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm giving away the trade secrets right now because I actually don't care. Bernie's not running for president anymore. So like, I'm not here to protect him. Bottom line is, you know, that's what this is about is how do you make, so how do you isolate somebody so they're no longer a threat? And if, and Diane didn't have that. She didn't have like some sort of institution or public figure that could come in and, and they did support her by the way, but they did in a way that it wasn't like she had long roots and that. Yeah. It's tough. You know, you've, you've, you've run the, against the establishment. You know how it goes. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've had, I think, I mean, one of the things that happened to me after the campaign is I was like kind of, uh, I, I got called by a, a journalist and was interrogated for daring to run. And I think I, I, I asked male friends who've run for office before if things like that have happened to them. And nope, nope. I just feel like people are just waiting on the sidelines, salivating, hoping that women publicly fail. And it, it takes, it takes a huge army of women who've yeah. done it before to be able to step in and support people who are going through it. And that's really why I, I love what you do. And I love matriarch. Um, and I, I would love to still be involved with that organization because um, there's no one better to, to be there for somebody than someone who's gone through it, gone through those trenches. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that <laughs> for folks who don't know matriarch supports working class women running for office. Um, because there are an unprecedented number of women who are running now, especially working class women who don't necessarily understand what it takes to run, what experiences they're going to go through, what financial difficulties, personal difficulties they're going to go through. And so we make sure that there's a community there to have their backs and help inform them and advise them and help them find staff and help them become their campaigns be viable. And I say viable, meaning fully you know, competitive uh, earlier so that they can get bigger endorsements that really bring in a lot of the money. So that's kind of what we do. But Lauren, you get that. We get that. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's 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 one of my favorite organizations out there. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Where can we check out your show? Oh, so I'm on YouTube under Biting Commentary. And Nomiki, I still have to have you on. So I'll be in touch. <laughs> Anytime. But, um, yeah, we we eat food. I uh, I order local food and tr taste test it. So if you know a local restaurant in New York City that you want me to boost their food, just let me know. And oh, do I have a list? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So we'll we'll taste test that stuff together. And I talk with local community leaders like Nomiki and uh and chat about the, the local happenings and the latest. So check us out. Love it. Love it. Love it. And when is it air? Um every Sunday at 8 p.m. live on YouTube. Fabulous. All right. Lauren Ashcraft, thank you for joining us. Love you. We'll come back on soon. We have so much more to talk about. Yes. <laughs> to everybody who's been tuning in, thank you so much. All of the super chats, all of the uh, all of the moderators, all of the algorithm boosters and the troll attackers. We love you. Starting next week, we're going to give all the shout outs out. We're figuring out our system still, as you know. Uh, but we will see you live or not live. What am I talking about? We're not live anymore. Um, <laughs> Pre-taped. <laughs> Wednesday. No, but yeah, we, we air Wednesdays and Fridays uh, here on our network here, 8 p.m., to 10 p.m. Eastern. And of course, check out the committee program Mondays right here on this channel. Thank you to everybody. Stay in solidarity.
flash momentarily for class solidarity cash circulating give the masses back its currency greed from elites oligarchs stay fed deep state faith fed everybody break bread racism homophobia sexism religion in this melted pot we live in time to build a new system unionize labor rights highlight the issue talking heads left is best the saga continues continues the no meeky show, show.